American labor market has long been famous for what economists call its flexibility relative to other developed nations. While our European counterparts provide workers with much more security in terms of labor protections, it's harder to hire and fire employees in Europe. U.S. workers tend to move around professionally and geographically and have far less in the way of job security. America has tended to be a job machine with rapid turnover as the economy adopts new technology with comparatively modest supports for those who must find new work or retrain. The current worker transition system in the U.S. has been focused on things like trade-ins. Did a factory move abroad or did a foreign computer displace an American producer? While having few supports for the much more common problem of displacement through automation. This issue has gotten worse in the last decade or so as the pace of technological innovation has sped up. It's time for the U.S. to take a serious look at how it supports workers caught in these technological riptides. AEI recently commissioned a paper from Rachel Lipson and David Deming of Harvard University reviewing the data on the effectiveness of existing worker transition programs and examining policy options for improving it. I invited them and AEI visiting fellow Mason Bishop another expert in federal employment transition programs, to discuss these findings. This episode of Hardly Working is the audio from that event. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Brent Orrell, and I'm a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where my research focuses on workforce development and criminal justice reform. It's my pleasure to welcome you to today's conversation about a recently released AEI report on the topic of worker transition and retraining programs. Particularly since the turn of the century, American policymakers have grown increasingly concerned about how trends in production, automation, and trade are impacting American workers, especially in the manufacturing sector. By one estimate, between 1980 and 2017, the U.S. lost some 8 million manufacturing jobs. In 1960, manufacturing made up 28% of the U.S. workforce, and today, it's just 8%. The past two decades have been particularly difficult for manufacturing workers. Between 2000 and 2017, the U.S. lost 5 million manufacturing jobs, over twice the number lost between 1980 and 2000. Forecasters expect this trend to continue with increased automation and rising productivity, resulting in strong levels of U.S. production but declining levels of employment. Those are some of the numbers. But AEI scholars like Tim Carney and Nicholas Eberstadt have helped us understand the toll, the human toll associated with the loss of reliable, long-term manufacturing employment opportunities for both individuals and communities. In Alienated America and Men Without Work, these authors helped us understand What's happened that what happened or what happened when America's industrial towns and cities lost their industries, family stress, atrophy of community institutions, addiction, idleness, and a wave of what became known as deaths of despair. Our failure as a nation to adequately plan and prepare for these transitions to product, uh, to transition these workers to productive jobs has imposed a very high cost on individuals, families, communities, and the nation as a whole. And I regret to say the story of manufacturing, higher productivity and lower levels of employment may be coming to a sector near you. 
It's worth noting that while employment has not fully rebounded from the COVID-19 recession, the nation's total level of economic production is almost back to where it was prior to March 2020. In other words, despite an increase in, in unemployment from 3.5% to 6.1% in April uh, of 2021, we are producing almost as many goods and services as we were the, before the pandemic. The productivity of American workers, especially as it's been augmented by technology, remains a wonder of the world. It's also a warning of potential work dislocations to come as businesses of all types continue to invest in labor-saving technology. Our workforce will continue to need upskilling and reskilling to gain access to the family-supporting jobs and wages they need. The main challenge we face is that while our economy is rapidly evolving with all sorts of unpredictable effects on jobs and careers, the public systems that are meant to buffer employment dislocations have hardly changed at all. As one of today's speakers, Mason Bishop, likes to say, when it comes to, the workforce, to our workforce development programs, we have a New Deal system and an iPhone economy. Our conversation today is designed to better understand the lessons learned from the past several decades about the need for improved approaches to worker transitions and to consider policy options for helping workers to adapt to technological change. Our speakers are eminently qualified to help us do that. The paper we will be discussing was authored by Rachel Lipson, Director of the Project on Workforce at Harvard's Malcolm Wiener Center for Social Policy, and Professor David Deming, the Director of the Wiener Center, as well as a number of their colleagues. Rachel's work focuses on policy and research at the intersection of education and labor markets. Prior to joining the Wiener Center, she worked for Europe, a nonprofit organization promoting work and career opportunities for disadvantaged and disconnected populations in partnership with American businesses. She was also a strategic advisor to JP Morgan's philanthropic arm, helping to shape its investments in human capital development. David Deming is a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School and the Harvard Graduate School of Education. He is the faculty director of the Malcolm Wiener Center for Social Policy and a research associate at NBER. His research focuses broadly on the economics of skill development, education, and labor markets. He is currently serving as a co-editor at the American Economic Journal and is the principal investigator along with Raj Chetty and John Friedman at the Climbing Initiative an organization that seeks to study and improve the role of higher education in social mobility. Our respondent is AEI Visiting Fellow Mason Bishop. Mason is also the owner and principal at WorkEd Consulting, where he works on federal and state workforce development and higher education policies, practices, and programs. Specifically, he focuses on post-secondary training and credentialing, as well as entrepreneurship and workforce development tailored to the high-tech economy. Mason served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Employment and Training at the U.S. Department of Labor from 2001 to 2007, during which time he led national workforce policy efforts and initiatives and helped lead key workforce investment programs, including trade adjustment assistance and other dislocated worker programs. 
Earlier, he coordinated legislative efforts at the state level to create Utah's Department of Workforce Services, one of the most highly integrated and effective workforce systems in the country. In a moment, I'm going to hand this off to Rachel and David to provide an overview of the report, the search for stability, a review of worker transitions. Following their presentation, I'll turn to Mason for his thoughts on the issues that Rachel and David have highlighted. Following Mason's participation, we'll shift to a conversation among the four of us before we turn to you, the audience, for questions and answers. You can send those questions, as you can see at the bottom of the screen, either to Onik Joshi at AEI.org or tweet them to hashtag AEI on workers. So, Rachel, kick us off and take us through the report. First of all, thank you. Thank you so much, Brent, for hosting us today and for uh, supporting this work. Um, we're really looking forward to being able to discuss this with all of you. Um, and before I get going, I, I do want to recognize um, our co-authors. Of course, David Deming is here with us today, um, but we were also um, benefited from the invaluable contributions of, of Jaron Chang, Jacob Greenspan, Stephanie Nussbaum, and, and Mariano Paro, um, who worked on this report with us. So just wanted to give them some acknowledgement as well. Uh, next slide, please. So here's the agenda for um, our brief remarks this afternoon. Uh, the search for stability paper proceeds in four sections. So we'll be mirroring that structure and then very briefly um, share key findings from each of those chapters. Um, I'm going to begin by highlighting just a few of the key shifts affecting worker displacement in the U.S., although that could be a subject of uh, a presentation just on its own. Uh, then we'll sh share some of the big picture findings on how the U.S. approaches job loss and worker transitions and the types of programs that exist right now um, to support workers in finding new work. Uh, third, I'll share some of the key takeaways from our, from our survey of the research literature uh, for lessons about efficacy and the record of what we know now about, about worker transitions um, here in the U.S. as well as a bit internationally as well. And then for the final section, I'm going to turn over to David to share some thoughts on, on the implications for future research um, and highlight topics where we think there's a lot of potential for further study uh, that could help lessen the shock of economic change on, on the workers of the future. Um, next slide, please. Uh, and we can move on to the next one as well. So moving into just the first section here, um, I first want to say, you know, when we started drafting this report in the winter of 2019, 2020, it was hard to imagine at that point in time how dramatically um, the world was about to change. Uh, you know, this question of how to successfully transition workers across roles, employers, um, and industries, it's clearly no longer theoretical um, and has been a pressing matter of discussion over the past uh, past month and years. Um, just to just show you some quick data from the COVID crisis to ground the conversation today, um, this comes from Opportunity Insights Economic Tracker. Um, and what you can see on this slide is that while employment rates um, have largely rebounded, to pre-COVID levels for high-wage workers, they remain significantly lower for low-wage workers. And I mean, for, for me, what I see here, these are the workers for whom worker transitions um, are, are and will be the most important right now and in the coming months and years. And I think it just emphasizes um, how important the questions tackled in this report are for the present and the future. Um, next slide, please. 
So the report begins just by outlining some of the key shifts that have been affecting worker displacement in the U.S., um, some of which Brent um, uh, referenced in his introductory remarks. Um, and we make the case that even before COVID, um, ongoing structural changes in the economy posed major challenges to job stability of a, of a large subset of workers in this country. Um, and, you know, as the graph from Robert Lawrence, um, Robert Lawrence's work shows here, the share of manufacturing employment in the U.S. has fallen over time. Um, and Brent referenced in his comments um, a number of the factors that have been contributing to that change, whether it be trade, technological change, um, changes in productivity growth, uh, product demand for manufacturing goods. Um, in addition to this decline, um, David has done a lot of work, um, as well as others, on how that skills are changing concurrent to this. Uh, the fastest growing jobs in our economy require both technical and social skills. Meanwhile, the COVID crisis has really um, wrecked some additional havoc on the labor market. Um, we're seeing disruptions in, in large shares of employment in whole industries and occupational categories um, and jobs um, in certain uh, education levels and, and also certain racial groups have been disproportionately affected by those changes. Uh, next slide, please. There are also geographic um, undercurrents to job loss that we focus in on in the report. So we reference Enrico Moretti's work on the Great Divergence, which just highlights how opportunities um, have been looking different in different U.S. cities and regions. And your zip code in a lot of ways has affected the types of jobs available to you. Uh, the image on the screen is drawn from Otter Dorn and Hansen's work on the China shock. Um, this is notable research for many reasons, but among them, this idea that actually labor markets may not be self-correcting from exogenous shocks in the way that traditional economic models have predicted. So in their work, they found that there were long-run wage of, um, effects on wages for areas that faced Chinese import exposure. And this was even a decade after the initial shock. So uh, uh, perpetuating um, struggles for workers who live in those regions being able to find um, quality jobs. Next slide, please. Um, it might seem obvious, but one of the other things we wanted to do in setting the framing for the report is to understand how job loss affects people, um, because this is, of course, an important factor that should affect the approaches that we take to support workers in transition. And basically, the takeaway here is that um, a layoff is not just a temporary blip in a worker's career. Um, there are long-term earnings losses, and those are even more pronounced if you lose your job in a recession. So this image on the screen um, looks at work from Davis and Von Wachter, uh, men 50 years or younger with at least three years of prior job tenure. Um, and what you can see here is it's notable, even 20 years after that initial displacement event, their, their annual earnings um, have not uh, fully recovered. Uh, and again, those effects were more pronounced in a, um, if you lost your job during a recession. Next job, uh, next slide, please. The, the impact of job loss, of course, though, is not just on earnings, um, as we heard from Brent. And if anything, the past year has illuminated the physical and mental health impacts. 
Um, prior research has found that displaced workers experience a 50 to 100% increase in mortality rates um, the year following displacement. Um, and again, long run effects, 10 to 15% higher mortality as much as 20 years um, after the displacement event. Job loss is also associated with increased risk of hospitalization, anxiety, depression. Um, and there's research showing that the loss of employer-sponsored healthcare can also have an adverse effect on, on health outcomes. Um, next slide, please. Uh, and as Brent referenced, um, I thought uh, quite eloquently, the individual level may not be always the right frame to think about this um, as well. So job loss, um, especially when it's concentrated, has a significant impact on the surrounding community. Um, it uh, un may undermine community social capital. Um, we've seen from research that areas of concentrated unemployment are correlated with higher rates of crime, um, other negative externalities. The image on the screen um, from Kerwin Charles' work shows that declining local manufacturing employment is actually associated with um, rising opioid use and deaths. Um, and it's a large statistically significant relationship between opioid prescriptions uh, and a decline in an area's manufacturing share. Um, we've also seen displacement is associated with higher rates of divorce. Um, children of a displaced worker perform worse in school. Uh, they're less likely to go to college. They have lower earnings. Um, so some significant effects beyond the individual worker themselves. Next slide, please. Finally, in the report, we also look at this dynamic of long-term joblessness, um, in a, which in a lot of ways can be sort of a, a vicious cycle. The, the longer a worker remains unemployed, the more difficult it becomes to get into a new job at all. So longer unemployment spells um, can can really become self-perpetuating in some ways. Um, we looked at some of the research evidence indicating that on the employer side, hiring managers um, may discriminate against the long-term unemployed due to assumptions that there are some productivity-related reasons to explain why the person has been out of work. Um, but for workers, it's also some evidence that the longer someone unemployed can't find work, the more discouraged they become and the less intensively that they search for a job. So this was some uh, context we also thought was important uh, to consider as we now evaluate um, the approach to how do we deal with this project problem and what are the efficacy of different approaches look like. Um, next slide, please. Uh, so this is actually a quite lengthy section in the paper. I'm going to try to run through it uh, very briefly for you all, but looking forward to diving into some of the programs in more detail in our discussion. Next slide, please. First, wanted to just provide some context as to what we mean when we discuss active labor market policies. So um, in a lot of ways in the US dialogue, you might be more familiar with what are thought of as passive labor market policies. These are things like unemployment insurance that are, are meant to provide a financial cushion and income support um, to workers who have lost their jobs. In contrast, what an active labor market policy is doing is, is really attempting to stimulate employment by helping workers find jobs or train for new ones or subsidizing employment. Um, and so uh, we, we focus um, most of our work in this report on, on active labor market policies and understanding um, what are the current sets of programs and what do we know about um, efficacy in those contexts. Next slide, please. Um, and, and one of the, the 
findings that we wanted to highlight from our review is that um, the U.S. Uh, has historically has spent very little on active labor market programs relative to peers in OECD. So um, in 2017, the U.S. spent 0.1% of GDP on active measures. Um, this was the lowest amongst all OECD countries except for Mexico. Um, 2008 was the year in which the spending peaked at 0.17% of GDP, and that that um, is in comparison to Northern European countries spending about 1% to 2%. Next slide, please. To zoom in a little bit about what this has looked like in one active labor market program, so if you think about employment services, um, uh, this is research from um, from Wadner, uh, and it shows you that funding for employment services has actually declined by uh, declined 50% in real terms between 1984 and 2017. Um, and this had some real effects on the ground. State workforce agencies um, have reduced the number of local offices. So there were over 1,100 American job centers that closed between 2004 and 2020 um, and reductions in some of the frontline staff that served in those settings. Um, the other thing to note is that um, training services in a lot of ways are not um, universally available um, through the one stops. Um, really, the, the offices are given discretion to determine who needs it most. And in a lot of cases, that means workers who already have some background or interest in jobs that are in demand locally. Um, in addition, aggregate spending per participant on transitioning workers has declined across the U.S. since the 80s, although there is some substantial variation across states here as states are spending different levels of money on supplemental um, Supplemental spending in, uh, in addition to federally funded programs. Um, next slide, please. So one of the unique things that we wanted to do in this report is really hone in and try to understand what we call the worker transition journey. Um, so we basically mapped out what are the stages that an individual worker goes through during a job loss, as well as a community that might have suffered from a major employment disruption, whether it be the pandemic or a factory closure. And we just use this as a framework to help us understand, you know, what is the map and the set of current um, federal programs that are available right now to support workers and communities across each of these stages. Um, for the sake of time, I won't go through this in detail right now, but we, we hope that this can be a helpful tool um, for policymakers in thinking about the worker transition experience. Um, and how to prepare and respond to disruptions. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, I think uh, in the U.S., um, this uh, top level of the worker, the individual worker, has really been the focus, um, uh, less so in terms of programs that are focusing on the broader community level that's been affected by a firm closure, downturn, or mass layoffs. Um, most of the federal investments that we mapped um, are people-focused, not place-based. Um, next slide, please. Uh, so this might be a little hard to see and encourage folks to check it out in the report, but in our research, we identified at least 40 um, different programs that include um, active labor market uh, policies, including job search assistance, training, and wage assistance components across um, 12, at least 12 different agencies. Um, it's notable here that most of the U.S.'s worker transition programs are described and categorized based on the beneficiaries they serve. So demographic or, or special attributes, including um, individuals with a lot of focus on individuals facing 
what's often called barriers to employment. Um, we segmented those into 10 primary groups that we could find programs that map to. Those include low income, um, prolonged absence from employment, uh, limited literacy or English language ability, veterans, single parents, seniors, homeless and foster care youth, um, individuals with disabilities, um, the returning um, population, uh, and, and Native Americans. Um, and another thing I think that's notable that I just wanted to call out here is that uh, in the U.S. in particular, um, the country is focused in some ways on what is the source of a job loss. So this is unique compared to peers in OECD. Um, U.S. programs emphasize in particular dislocated workers and especially those who have been impacted by trade. Um, and trade impacted workers, particularly through the TAA program, are, are eligible to receive um, more training, longer unemployment benefits, um, and other more generous uh, service provision. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that we dive in more deeply in the report is a really a focus on, on looking at um, the Trade Adjustment Assistance Program, as well as the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act. Um, outside of the higher education system and Pell Grants, these are really the two primary um, federally funded programs that are specifically um, responsible for training of dislocated workers. Uh, next slide, please. So in this third section, we we do our best to survey the findings um, from the research literature on the efficacy of worker transition programs in the US um, and are looking to summarize what's been learned um, from recent studies, uh, particularly in a US context, but also incorporating um, some examples internationally as well. Next slide, please. Um, and so, you know, one of the things we find is that job search assistance and employment services um, at least traditionally, are cited as having the strongest evidence base in the American context. So there's been a number of evaluations, um, which we, we cite in more detail in the report, that have found positive impacts of these programs, um, which include services like resume assistance, interview preparation, um, employment counseling, and referrals. Uh, that they've had a positive impact on, on the duration of unemployment, so helping individual workers return to work more quickly, um, and that generally they've found, been found to uh, be cost-effective. Um, cost um, the image on you, you see on the screen here is from um, Manoli et al. 2018, um, and the authors are, are looking at the long-term effects of an intervention implemented by Nevada in the second half of 2009, um, in which some uh, unemployment assistance, um, unemployment insurance recipients receive personalized job search assistance uh, at the beginning of their UI spells. And um, the treatment group got this report, the control members um, did not. Um, and while both groups saw declining earnings um, during the Great Recession, um, those that received job search assistance um, saw higher incomes for both individuals and for their families um, compared to the control group. Um, next slide, please. However, um, we also cite and dive in in the report um, some of this literature on displacement or equilibrium effects. And, I, you know, my take is that this poses some significant questions about the overall impact of job search assistance. Um, the way to think about this is that offering job search assistance um, may actually be, be playing the role of just transferring job opportunities from one set of individuals to another. So you could think about it like a phenomenon of, of musical chairs. 
So for instance, if one group receives counseling and those uh, another group does not, are you creating a displacement effect um, where the job search assistance services are actually just kind of coming at the expense of those who did not receive those services? Um, on the screen, you can see evidence from a study of job seekers in France. It was There was a randomized control um, evaluation of 235 communities across 10 different regions. Um, and while those participants who received job search assistance did find jobs more quickly, the authors found little net benefit from the program overall, as basically what seemed to be happening is that the program participants essentially are, are getting jobs at the expense of other similarly educated workers in their labor market who didn't benefit from um, receiving that um, intensive uh, counseling or support. Um, the other thing to note here is that um, those gains um, receded over time. Um, next slide, please. So in a lot of ways, you could think about um, training uh, as uh, sitting aside, looking at training alongside job search assistance, and they have different um, pros and cons and benefits and, and advantages. Um, uh, a lot of the literature on training programs um, in the US context really shows um, some mixed results. Um, we, we go through a number of the evaluations in the report in more detail. Um, and, and certainly one of the things to note in terms of training is that there are higher upfront costs. Um, and, it, and often because training actually takes you out of the labor market, there's negative or, or neutral short run impact. Um, but the important thing to note about training is that, um, is the, is the long run implications. Um, and so, Whereas job search assistance in some ways might be just helping one worker cut the line in front of another and it's individually beneficial, it might not scale. Um, and in contrast, skill building interventions like training can scale because you're investing in the human capital of the workforce. Um, some of the most compelling evidence that we found in our review um, was from the Kluve, Card, and Weber meta-analysis. They looked at over 200 studies of active labor market programs um, across 47 countries, um, and they found the largest average gains for training, um, particularly for dislocated workers, in fact, um, and the programs that emphasize human capital accumulation. Um, another paper that we highlighted um, in our review is this Hyman um, working, working paper from 2018 that looks at trade adjustment assistance. And it's notable because it does find um, some different results compared to some of the other evaluations of TAA. Um, in a lot of ways, it's a more comprehensive evaluation of data. It looks at 300,000 workers um, from 20 years of TAA participants. Um, and it uses a pretty unique methodology in which it uh, he compares um, um, workers before and after um, job displacement, and he takes advantage of this quasi-random assignment of the TAA certification evaluators to basically isolate um, the effects of TAA participation by looking at a group of similar workers, one of whom was approved for TAA and one of whom was not. Um, and the study finds large initial returns for TAA participants. Um, after 10 years, uh, they have approximately $50,000 um, higher cumulative earnings relative to all else equal workers who don't retrain. Um, and they do forego income while training, about $10,000, but it does appear over those 10 years that they're paid a premium for their newly acquired human capital. 
It is important to note, though, that these um, initial returns do look like they dissipate um, after the 10-year mark. And at that point in time, the earnings um, between the participants and the control group um, tend to converge. Um, next slide, please. Finally, um, a, a theme that seems to come out in the in the literature is that um, kind of the, the combination of supports that can assist navigation and training and coaching um, seem to make a difference. So this is from the, the we, um, we owe a gold star evaluation in 2017 in Fortson. Um, they found significantly higher earnings for participants that received training and core and intensive services, so including um, coaching and support from job centers. Um, and that was not the case for, um, for workers that uh, received training alone. So I think this is getting at the importance of kind of those navigational supports. Um, next slide, please. Finally, in the paper, we do a deep dive into um, one of the more promising um, retraining approaches, uh, which is often referred to in the literature as um, sectoral employment programs or sector-based training programs. Um, these programs are notable for a number of factors. One is that rather than offering referrals to training in any preferred field, they focus on specific um, in-demand industries in the local labor market where there is a high concentration of good jobs. And in a lot of ways, they're, they're reliant on staff that have um, sector-specific expertise, um, an up-to-date understanding of skills requirements and, and training in the, for jobs in the sector, um, and are building strong relationships with local employers in the industry. Um, you can see um, on the screen some of the programs where we dove into in the report uh, that have been evaluated um, in relatively rigorous research settings. Um, they span a wide range of industries and geographies, including places like Jacksonville, Phoenix, the Bronx, Milwaukee, and San Antonio. Um, next slide, please. We also, in the report, um, attempt to kind of look at these programs and try to understand what are the common um, elements or common themes that we see across across the sectoral employment settings. So um, the underlying theory, I think, that the programs are more effective when job preparation and placement and training um, are aligned with employer needs um, seems to at least be uh, represented in these evaluations that they are demand driven. Um, and that there is a higher likelihood then that the, the participants who complete can find employment in that high potential sector where they were trained. Um, the, the successful programs also really feature key wraparound supports that are complementing training um, and are helping assist those participants through the program and through their early days on a new job. So it could include childcare, access to housing and transportation, food assistance, all the types of things that affect someone's ability to persist and complete training as well as once they're um, in a new role. Uh, we saw across those all of these programs as well a focus on on social skills in addition to kind of occupational training. So um, all were in some way offering kind of career readiness services, um, coaching, um, emphasis on on teamwork and cohorts here that you see as well to kind of build those social and collaborative skills that are needed for um, success in the workplace. So instead of only being um, self-placed. Um, we saw that they were really building um, a program that kind of prepared 
their participants for the skills that we're going to meet in, in the future. Um, and uh, I th we think that this these approaches um, have a lot of promise uh, and we pull out in the report what we think can be replicated in other settings. So let me pause there and I'm gonna hand it over to David for the final section um, to talk about through some of the implications that we think uh, this report poses for future research. David, over to you. Thanks, Rachel. You can go to the next slide, please. Um, and thanks, Rachel. And thank you to the AI team, Brent, and everybody else for, for having us. It was uh, fun to write this report and we learned a lot and hopefully it's useful to everybody. thought I would just set the table for Mason's discussion and for the questions by kind of going back to what we think we've learned from this, highlighting some key points and then teeing up um, a discussion of future of the future of this important space. So I think what we've learned is through our work is that something we kind of all know, but it's useful to document, which is that um, the nature of work is really changing quite rapidly and um, people have to move up a job ladder where the rungs are kind of shifting positions over time. Um, and that we are seeing a sort of pattern of increasing economic disruption, structural change, the decline of manufacturing jobs, the nature of work really changing. And at the same time, the harm that uh, comes to workers from losing a job is really quite severe and they often don't recover. And moreover, the longer it takes somebody to find a job, the worse they tend to do, not just economically, which is kind of mechanical, but also in terms of um, social impacts, depression, opioid use, things like that, and the kind of scarring effects of graduating into a recession or taking a year to find a job when you're dislocated are, are quite severe. And anything we can do from a policy standpoint to help those folks is probably going to pay for itself and probably going to be very high return. And yet, when we look at how the U.S. does with so-called active labor market policies, we spend about a fifth of what, uh, what other OECD countries do. So we're really not investing in this area. The U.S. labor market is renowned for its flexibility. That's a good thing, but sometimes you need to build in a little bit of structure for folks who've uh, had the misfortune to lose their jobs, often through no fault of their own. And so the question is how to do that. So I think the fact that we don't spend very much and we have a kind of outdated system is a big problem, but it also presents a real opportunity because um, we can almost design something from scratch relative to what other countries are doing. And so how should we do that is the real question. And so I just wanna highlight three trade-offs here. Um, one is this um, trade-off in job um, training programs between what I'm gonna call foundational skills uh, versus vocational skills, right? So on, one, on, on the one hand, you might think of it as workers need a solid foundation of uh, skills that apply in all kinds of jobs. This could be social skills, like Rachel mentioned, the ability to work in a team. Um, some recent work I've done talks about the role of being able to make independent decisions and have autonomy on the job and um, leading to career earnings growth, things like that, skills that are kind of transferable. Um, and, and, and so the question is, are, are there workers who need training? In, and if you want to think in a more kind of baseline sense, like workers who come to this country who mostly work in back office jobs, but the ability to speak conversational English would allow them to work in front office jobs. So something like that that really unlocks a broad range of jobs versus training for some specific vocational um, uh, profession that maybe is useful today, but might change or might be highly dependent. You know, you get trained to do a particular type of thing that is highly dependent on one employer in your town. Um, continuing to employ you and others. And there's a kind of trade-off there between um, training people for the jobs they need right away um, versus a kind of lifetime. And if you ask um, workers versus employers, you're going to get different answers as to how we should do that. I think the second one is um, thinking about programs that focus on job search assistance. So the idea that there's jobs out there, we just have to help people find them and kind of playing matchmaker in the economy versus programs that really focus on skill building, that focus directly on human capital. So you know, giving people skills they don't have, which is more costly and more time intensive, but also ultimately can kind of 
um, upgrade the skill of the workforce rather than just kind of um, helping people cut the line in terms of which jobs they get. Uh, as Rachel mentioned, some of these job search assistance programs have promising short run effects when you just look at the individual who receives it. But often the way that that happens is they basically get a job instead of somebody else. And so when you try to scale it up to the kind of economy-wide level, it doesn't create the gains you see at the individual level because you're just kind of um, moving the deck chairs around, um, playing musical chairs for jobs. Uh, and then I think the third thing is this kind of idea of a delivery model. Like how do you want to give these services? And you kind of um, these sectoral employment programs that Rachel mentioned have extremely high economic returns. They're also quite expensive and intensive and are often done in person, right? So they're kind of cohort models where you bring people in, you really intensively invest in them for a period of time, nine months or longer, versus lighter touch interventions where you maybe serve people with an app or you give them some kind of online job training. It's less expensive, it's less effective, but then in terms of cost effectiveness, where do we come out? And so I think those are real challenges we face looking forward to the future. Um, I don't have all the answers. The report gives some of them. I think our answers are you do want to focus on foundational skills more than you might think. Um, that also you want to focus on skill building rather than job search assistance. And that oftentimes a high touch intervention like a sectoral employment program does work very, very well, even though it's more expensive, because it's kind of an arduous process to really learn skills and get retrained for a new job. And it's something that's unlikely to be done well on the cheap. So those are our conclusions, but I think these are all very much open areas. I look forward to Mason's thoughts and the thoughts of others. Thank you. So it's my turn, I guess, Brent. I yeah, know. sorry, I was, I was struggling for my mute button. Uh, yes, <laughs> I'd like to hear your some of your high-level thoughts based on what um, Rachel and David have um, told us so far today. Well, I'll try to keep them high level, Brent, and uh, not not bring down this wonderful conversation. Um, first, I want to thank Rachel and David for their work. I already have used their study. I testified a month or so ago to uh, Congress on trade adjustment assistance and was able to use this report fresh off the presses as um, nice evidence and background for some of my comments. So I want to thank them and their colleagues for for all the work they put in. It was it's terrific work. Um, I'm going to start my comments with a story, and I'm going to then end with the same story. Um, when I was Deputy Assistant Secretary back right around 2006, I was in charge um, of coming up with TA reauthorization principles for the George W. Bush administration and for Secretary Chow at the Department of Labor. And right around that time, Representative Dave Camp um, had a big whirlpool layoff in his district in Michigan. About 300 people were laid off, uh, very traumatic to the community and to the individual workers. So they had me come out and present. And so we set, went to a community college and it was a gym and I presented, here's trade adjustment assistance and other people were there to help. And I'll never forget after we were all done and everybody was sort of mingling, I had a couple come up to me. At the time I was in my thirties, this was you know 15 or so years ago. And, uh, and this couple was probably in their late 50s, maybe 60 time frame. And they looked a little weathered and a little beat down. Um, and they came up to me and they said, what do we do? Um, and, and they were the sweetest couple. And the husband said, I'm thinking of going back to training. What do you think? And I said, yeah, I think you ought to take a look at what the co college offers. And also I turned to the wife and I said, are you going to go to retrain? Cause they both worked at the Whirlpool plant. She said, well, I hadn't really thought about that and such. And 
it really hit me and it's always stuck with me this story of that level of trauma and and um lack of hope and direction that people have when they have these kinds of events occur in their communities and it really um focused my thinking around taa in particular at the time and has continued to really influence how i view these programs so i think the uh, notion of the damage that is done to long-term unemployed we can never understate and that um, we really do i think as a nation in particular if those if that long-term unemployment is due to something like global trade or globalization i think we should we do have a commitment to helping those people and in fact if we're going to make federal investments in job training seems to me that's exactly the type of market failure so to speak that we ought to be investing in that leads me really to my second point that rachel and david touched on which is um really the lack of a federal strategic approach over time to worker dislocation. Um, you saw a couple of their charts, um, somebody who continues to hammer this message as much as I can. And in their report, they talk about the states being the laboratories, but at the same time, um, the lack of, I guess you could say, federal investment. Well, I would go so far as to say that the question is not only how much are we investing, but how are we investing? Because the reality of our job training um, and worker dislocation programs at the federal level is, while the states are the laboratories of democracy, we're so overly prescriptive in our federal laws that we actually, in some cases, I'm afraid, create disincentives for meaningful ways to help workers. TAA, I think, is the perfect example where I came to the realization again 15 or more years ago that in many ways we sort of inadvertently keep people out of the labor market in TAA because in order to qualify for job training, to qualify for un extended unemployment benefits, they have to remain out of the labor market. Um, and we don't accommodate like we did in welfare reform in the 90s, these meaningful transitions from job training and benefits that people can get as they ease back into the labor market. And I think that's an area we really need to do a much better job in many of our worker dislocation programs is it's not this all or nothing. You get, you're down and out and tough on your luck and you get all these resources or you get a lower wage job than what you had pre layoff and you get nothing. Um, and I think we really need to think about how we do this and that we really need a federal strategic approach, not this reactive approach we always have when there's a traumatic economic event in this country and say, well, we need to layer another program and layer and then layer another one. And then we have this hodgepodge of stuff that nobody can do anything with at the state and local level. The third point I wanted to make is on sectoral approaches. I really appreciate the fact that Rachel and David and their colleagues um, identified this. And my experience has been that uh, I think we struggle with a couple things when it comes to sectoral approaches um, from a service delivery standpoint. One is I find that there's often a lack of definition of understanding of what a sector approach even is. Um, I think a lot of times in workforce development, if I may be so blunt, we kind of tend to be trendy. And what I mean by that is there's a buzzword, apprenticeships one right now that's going on. It's like, that's the thing to do. Everybody tries to latch on and often nobody really knows how to do it effectively. I think that's happened with sectoral uh, strategies and sectoral approaches is we say we need to be sector based, but then I've gone and looked online over time for definitions. What does that mean? What does it look like? And when does it work really well? And it's really the information is really hard to find. <laughs> I don't know if Rachel and David ran into that as they researched it, but I'm, I'm very concerned about that. 
which really kind of leads me to uh, another point, which is the whole job search assistance. And I think that's exactly right. And I think the reason job search assistance works is because we need to approach through our sectoral approaches the way people get jobs now, which it's no longer about writing your resume, looking on a long list of jobs, sending your resume into 100 different, hoping that one of them looks at it. It's really about networks. It's about job experiences. It's about mentoring. And it's about really that connectedness that people need within a community when they're unemployed. And I think whether we talk about disadvantaged youth, dislocated workers or others, that lack of network connection really is at the heart of what they struggle with, that other people who are connected can get back on their feet much more quickly, I think. And then finally, I'll come back around to where I started, which is the Michigan story. And I really appreciate Rachel uh, talking about um, that they found that we talk a lot about the individuals and not about communities. One of the other things that I came away with, in addition to the, the despair and the struggle that individuals face, is the struggle that communities face when this happens. And unfortunately, one of the assumptions we make with our federal programs is that everybody everywhere in the United States is sort of from a community perspective or from a workforce development board or a community college that they have the resources and assets by which to respond to these traumatic economic events. One of the things I've learned over the last few years as a consultant that I like to remind everybody is if you go to most community colleges in the United States, they're one to three building small enterprises. They're not these large Miami Dades or Northern Virginia Community College. And it's the same thing with our workforce system. Most of them are smaller to mid-sized operations, trying to do the best they can, and they're not resourced and they're not necessarily connected themselves to the latest literature and research and evidence-based practices. They're just trying to do the best they can. And so when I came back from Michigan, I realized, you know, often we say, we've got this layoff of 300 people, go to the community college. And I thought at the time, my goodness, what are we doing to these community colleges and to these workforce boards and others who are trying to respond to these things? And we're just assuming they have the assets and resources and the knowledge to be able to respond effectively. And uh, so that's actually when I, I came up with the idea of a community college training program, which fast forward became the TAA uh, TACT program later on under the Obama administration, but I was the one that kind of launched that idea because I thought not only do we need to resource individuals, but I think what Rachel was kind of getting at was we need to think about how do we resource communities and how do we effectively resource and help the people who are responding to the long-term unemployed and to the worker dislocation. And I don't think we do a very good job of that at all. I think we just sort of say, if we throw lots of money at it, they'll figure it out. And often I think what we find is it's very difficult to figure it out. Um, and so as we look to sectoral approaches, like what they identified in the report that are effective, one of the things I think we need to do as a federal response a much better job of is working with smaller and mid-sized communities and, uh, and institutions across the country around educating them around what are these evidence-based practices that work and how do you connect with employers effectively and how do you close that gap between the supply and demand for labor. So I will end my comments there and again, thank them for this wonderful report and um, any questions I can answer or any more information I can provide, I'd love to do so. Thanks, Brent. Thank you, Mason and Rachel and David. Thank you um, for all the work and thought you put into the report um, as well as the presentations. Um, I, I just want to pick up this thread that uh, Mason was talking about um, 
I mean, it really seems to me, and I, I want to get responses from all of you on this. Uh, you know, when we have a when we have a natural disaster in this country, um, we have FEMA. The states have their response systems. Uh, the natural disaster uh, ahead of time, natural disaster strikes, and all of those systems activate, and a whole host of resources and um, and money and people and skills uh, are brought to bear to help communities respond, recover, and recover. Um, and. I just don't think we have anything like that as it relates to employment shocks. Um, you know, we have, we, we kind of have, uh, you know, pools of money and we can do grants and we can, you know, we've got TAA benefits if it's linked to trade. Um, uh, but they're uh, just linking to Mason's point about, if, if your response is to parachute into the community and say, well, go to the community college, that doesn't seem to me to be adequate at all. And I'm really curious, what do, I mean, uh, am I right about that in sort of my sense of, of how we respond to these things? And then um, what, what, are, what are some of the options, alternatives to do the planning side of this and to help communities and individuals sort of understand that this is uh, it not guaranteed you're going to be laid off and lose your job, your factory is going to close and you're going to, you know, be without work, but that communities need to be thinking about their own um, economic transitions uh, ahead of time. So I'm, I'm curious, does that come up in the research? Rachel, David, Mason, I, any of you can respond. Yeah, I mean, I, I can I can jump with that. I think Brett, first of all, the I, I agree with your intuition. I mean, I think that um, you know, it's not like FEMA tries to stand up a new agency or a new program every time there's a disaster. That thing exists already and is is they engage in preparedness as part of the normal course of operation, so that when there is a crisis, we can we can jump in and, and address it rather than having to build from scratch. You might say, well, what is the harm of just passing a program every time there's a big recession or some big dislocation? Well, the harm is that the money's never permanent. And when you send money to a community college trade adjustment assistance or whatever, and it's some big grants for five years, it's, it's in response to a stimulus package or something like that. The cost of that is that you don't build the kind of connective tissue between employers and community colleges and local organizations that, that you know, causes them all to kind of meet in the middle and create the kinds of programs that can last and provide a kind of guarantee that the funding is going to be here for a while. And that therefore, the employers ought to change a little bit the way they recruit and the colleges ought to change a little bit the way they educate and train so that we can build pipelines from education and training institutions into the workforce. And that's kind of a trust issue. It's a local issue. And it's, it doesn't just happen because somebody gets a big grant. It has to, and you know, when you see programs, successful programs, they're typically, they take years to build. Um, and they're, they're not, you know, just sort of one-off things. And so I think that's the cost of doing it this way is that we never have any guarantee that a program that, you know, has funding today is going to have funding tomorrow. And I think that's, a, I, I personally think that's really damaging um, to our efforts to, to retrain and reskill the workforce. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll just add to, to what David said. It, 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 in some cases, it's even worse than that, because, again, what I found in my experience in the last eight years in particular, Brent, is not only do we have sort of the permanent infrastructure, but that when we do swoop in with lots of money is, again, we haven't provided the ongoing sort of technical assistance um, building that needs to happen so that people who get this money can effectively deploy it in their communities. And I can't tell you how many community college doors I walked through during the TAC grant days and they'd shut the door and say, oh my gosh, help me, Mason. I don't even, I can't even get people hired at the community college to teach the courses and stuff. Um, it's, it's, and so what you do have is you have a big investment, like $2 billion intact come. And after four to six years, um, it winds down and you really ask, well, how much of that ends up being sustainable after the fact? How many of those programs continue to exist? How many of those policies and approaches continue to exist? And so I think, again, it, it's it's an issue. I think what I'm hearing from Rachel and David is a plea, <laughs> if I can say it this way, to say we have to examine a more comprehensive. The federal government's role right now is not adequate. It is not adequate to just say, okay, you know, we've had COVID, we're going to dump, you know, a trillion dollars into this and then half a billion into that and then think, oh boy, we've done a great job. We're supporting the American people. That is, that's not happening. Um, what we need to do is a much more consistent and ongoing approach to building the capacity of communities to be able to respond to individuals so that just like you said, Brent, um, when a new, you know, we're not legislating a new UI program every time we have a crisis and we've seen what a disaster that is. Um, people can't get benefit. And so what do people spend their time doing if you're the laid off worker? Instead of spending your time thinking forward and thinking, how do I get back on my feet? I, you're, sp you're spending your time being completely reactive. Oh, my gosh, I can't get my UI eligibility established. I can't get money. It's going to take the state three months to get me a check. How am I going to feed my family? You know, that sort of thing. And so we really make it the worst of all worlds because of the lack of preparation, I think, based on what you said, Brent. You might even call this a jobs infrastructure need yeah. since we're in infrastructure season. I mean, I think I'm, I'm in violent agreement <laughs> with Mason's points. I think that's... Yeah, it really is, David. It's almost like a work, we need a workforce development. I mean, we have higher ed, right? And, you know, yeah. university kind of infrastructure and that's well-resourced and for the most part by federal and state governments. But we really don't have kind of a consistent evidence-based workforce development infrastructure. And in fact, we have a very inefficient patchwork of silo programs that come down to the states and they're supposed to figure out how to make it all work with a bunch of mandates and federal law kind of getting in their way, I think, often. So the, the only thing I would add there is just um, in another silo is really between the economic development actors and then the workforce development actors, which I think gets at Brent's initial question. Um, it's a lot. Look, these problems that we're talking about, they're hard. It's not an there's not an easy solution for how do you do the retraining and, and get them into new jobs. But I think often for the local um, economic development actors, it becomes that the easiest solution is really let's let's try to focus on business attraction and also focus on talent attraction. Like, how do we get people to move here who have the skills that we need versus what would it actually look like to look at the the assets of the people that we have and um, be 
combining those two strategies at once of like, how do we build for the jobs of the future in this community and invest in the people um, who live here? And I think, unfortunately, if you if you look at it, how economic development traditionally has been conceived of kind of the sets of tools and strategies that a lot of the those ecosystems are thinking about are not really linking up um, with the workforce development side of the house. And that also comes back to then you tell the community college align to the local labor market align to the local labor market and they say there there are no good jobs here so what does that actually what does that mean for us right now and so to me that sh that really gets at why those two um you know strategies have to go hand in hand so as i was listening to your talk i was thinking uh about you know how do we uh how how would we go about resourcing uh, a a a job a it's not a jobs it's an employment infrastructure that is thinking ahead about economic transitions and one of the things that the federal government can actually do reasonably well is collect and analyze data and project and the work that you all do um, in uh, on the academic research side about you know what are what are the transitions that we're looking at? How do we start moving toward where things are headed rather than being in this reactive mode? Um, and that goes to uh, that goes to a question I wanted to raise related somewhat to uh, David's um, prior work. Um, you know, we we and and uh, Rachel, you referenced this at the beginning of your presentation about kind of the shifting skill mix that's needed in the workforce and this sort of increased emphasis on um, you know skills uh, that are not technical in nature, non-cognitive, soft skills, whatever you you know whatever your nomenclature is. Um, in the report, in this report, you talk about how. Um, uh, you know, we, we thought of, of dislocation at mainly in the context of manufacturing. That's our, that, that, that's the data set that we've used. You know, like automation has affected manufacturing, trade has affected manu manufacturing employment in this country. Um, but in your, in your report, you, you seem to suggest that we're also seeing, uh, a slowdown, and I don't know if that's quite the right word, but in like these high wage management, professional and technical um, occupations um, that these kinds of jobs, which we have thought of as being um, insulated from competitive, uh, competitive pressures that lead to or automation or competitive pressures that lead to loss of jobs that these, these jobs may be, um, as I said in my introduction, coming, uh, dis dislocation may be coming to a sector near you. Um, so I, I, I'd like you to unpack that a little bit if you can, because I think it's important that people understand that this is not just about manufacturing. That's going to be, it's been a problem that will continue to be a, a challenge, but it's, it's a spreading phenomenon within our workforce. And I'd like you to either Rachel or David just sort of talk about that a little bit. I mean, what does the future look like in terms of who's going to need help when it comes to transitions? 
yeah, I, I suppose I can I can take that quickly. So I think, in, first of all, on the manufacturing point in particular, Brent, I mean, manufacturing employment has been in long-term secular decline in the U.S. for the last half century. And the trade, you know, tra- opening of trade with China accelerated that decline, but was happening anyway. And so that's why manufacturing is on our minds so much, because those jobs don't tend to come back. And so you need to transition people to new jobs because there aren't. When the factory closes, another one doesn't come. Whereas in services, if you get laid off from a, a retail job, you can often go find another one that's relatively growing. And so I think that's that's going to continue. And that's not really, a, I mean, it's a bad thing for the workers who lose their jobs, but it's not a bad thing for the economy. The, the challenge is how to get people into new jobs. And that's where I think what you see is a te- technical skills by themselves are no guarantee of long run employment. So I just want to make this point very clearly. If you ask an employer, what do they need? They'll say, I need somebody and we don't have enough welders. We don't have enough HVAC technicians. And that's true, right? At a point in time, an employer needs a particular person to fill a particular job. And if they could find that person, that person would be employed. But what happens is the technology of the job changes and it often changes rapidly. And so if you're a worker trying to get retrained in the kind of profession or trade that will last you a lifetime, not just to the next couple of years, you're you're taking a big risk by getting trained in welding or HVAC technicians if there's only one firm that needs you and that firm moves to another town because your skills are not very transferable. They're very fragile in a way. And so I think that's the that an individual worker faces is you're going to go back to school for a year at great cost to yourself. You want to do it for something that's going to really help you in the long run, not, not just today. Um, and in fact, the faster we have technological change and productivity growth, the more this becomes an issue, the more rapidly jobs change. And so you really want to get trained in the kind of thing that is future-proof, right? Skills that, that are transferable. What are those things? It's the, it's the soft skills, like you mentioned, teamwork, critical thinking, problem solving. We don't really know exactly what these things are. We have some evidence from sectoral employment programs that Rachel mentioned, like Year Up, that teach people these skills through the lens of employment in an industry that's fast growing. Let's say finance or healthcare is a big one, right? Because healthcare is a service that's kind of every, almost every town is a hospital. It's growing as a share of services. It's growing as a share of the workforce. And so it's a pretty safe thing. And so you, you, know, you pick a kind of sector to work in. But in healthcare, you can move from being a frontline medical assistant to a technician to maybe a a vocational nurse to being an RN. And so there's kind of a potential job ladder there. Um, But in order to move up that ladder, you need to develop the kind of soft skills that allow you to become a problem solver, that allow you to make open-ended decisions about what you should do next Um, and not just kind of press a button or not just perform, you know, operate a particular machine or whatever. And so I think that's why those programs work is because they nest the soft skills in with the kind of pick an industry that's growing and is safe and it is operating in a lot of places. And to me, that that's the model that works. You kind of just do both at the same time. So I, I guess my question was, I, I, I appreciate and agree with all of that. Uh, I, in fact, we just published last week a volume on non-cognitive skills. One of your colleagues, Kadeem Roy, um, contributed to that volume and uh, we are we are all over that that question with you um so but my i guess the the thought behind my question was we've thought of this as being a manufacturing issue but the paper seems to suggest that we we now have to be thinking about other categories of workers and uh who are going to be facing transitions and i that's what i was trying to get to is what uh who, who, who do you think is going who is going to be at bat next on this? Yeah. 
<laughs> what, what did Yogi Berra say? Predictions are hard, especially about the future. Yeah, um, absolutely. Like that. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of evidence that um, jo- jobs that, um, you know, require people to make kind of routine predictions like sales, sales jobs seem to be at, at risk because, you know, online retailers are getting pretty good at, at finding customers and, and predicting um, who needs what at what time. So I think that's another example. You know, I think that automation will move up the white collar ladder slowly but surely. So the kinds of jobs that are kind of information workers that are somewhat routine, I think are probably next at that. But again, I'm this speculation, you know, yeah. we'll predict these things. I, I guess my, my point is that we need to we need to kind of break out of this mindset yeah. that somehow transitions are about manufacturing. Uh, oh, I totally agree with that. Transition. Yeah. Yeah. I, okay, Rachel, you doing? I was just going to say that I think COVID has really like made that point so clear for so many people. I mean, when we think about um, our local economy in Boston and you look at hospitality, which previously everyone uh, was not predicted for massive disruption. And suddenly you have this influx of um, tens of thousands of workers who are looking for for new work and you know the workforce ecosystem in some form or another over the past year has really had a grapple with that conception of transferable skills I think in a way that they hadn't in the past of looking at local training providers that were literally training people to become um, hotel workers or uh, chefs and then think creatively, well, what do we what do we do right now with these folks who are we're about to graduate from those programs? And some of it is about like, how do you coach the individuals to kind of recognize the transferable skills that they've that they've built? So like, yes, when I think about the ecosystem in Boston and some of the organizations that we've worked with, it's super helpful when they can kind of forge that bridge or pipeline, say a hospital hospitality program links up with the hospital and and actually says, oh, the, here's a cohort of folks. There's growing demand in, right now during the pandemic for this set of kind of customer service facing roles to interact with families and um, keep in contact with, with people who are um, in the hospital because of COVID. But there's another piece of this for the worker themselves that's like really building that kind of resiliency around just being able to recognize here's the set of skills that I, I built in one context and here's how how they're actually applicable um, in another. And I mean, I think American workers right now have really demonstrated um, there's a lot of people out there who never thought that they would have to be moving from one occupation or one field into another and have been creative and resilient and, and navigated that kind of change with um, with grace. And I, I think that the kind of workforce professionals who have had to watch that are, are going to are going to learn something pretty interesting from this period of um, not only thinking so narrowly about the career ladder for someone specifically in the, the field they were trained for. But what does that mean more broadly for where they should look in the economy as a whole? So I'm glad I'm glad you brought up the workforce and its response uh, on another project Mason and I are working on right now. Uh, we're actually doing some interviews with state workforce, local workforce, community colleges, you know, about the, the you know, the challenges they face with COVID response, what they've learned, what they're what they're carrying forward. Um, and as I was reflecting on that, I was thinking about. You know, you you made the point, Rachel, in your presentation about the decline in the number of one stops American job centers that that have closed. And one thing that I think Mason and I are hearing uh, in these interviews um, with 
these uh, workforce system operators is, you know, they're having to completely rethink how they interact with uh, job seekers. You know, it's it, uh, people obviously for a while in many places couldn't get in to see anybody. So there was a big shift, very sudden shift, like every other aspect of our economic activity to virtual settings. But I think that some, a lot of that's going to stick. So um, uh, I guess my question, Mason, if I've mischaracterized any of that, you can weigh in and how many, um, or add anything to that before uh, Rachel and David respond. But we've talked a lot about place-based assistance, which I would assume would include bricks and mortar, uh, you know, kind of, I go to this place to get this service um, rather than person-based, but don't we need a system that really is focusing on the needs of individual workers and helping them to um, find their way in these places? I mean, I, I, I don't want to set it up as an either or, because I think it's both, but, but that idea that we need to shift completely to a community level sort of understanding of this leaves out kind of the agency of the people who are uh, looking for the jobs uh, and and their interests and abilities and uh, and where they want to go. Um, so anyway, I'm throwing that out there. Mason, if you want to add anything to that, and then uh, uh, David and Rachel can take a minute to respond. Well, I'll just add one interesting statistic. One of the states gave us that interviewed is that prior to COVID, Roughly, I think it was 94% of their traffic was in person going into one-stop career centers. And this state has actually been open since August. So it's not like they've been closed down until just recently. They've been open since August. And their current traffic into one-stops is 14%. Another state we've talked to um, was doing um, traffic studies consistently for three years prior to COVID um, and is getting ready now to do them every three months to decide to make some decisions on the mix of services, both in terms of place-based versus virtual. But what we kind of were hearing anecdotally, um, and we're going to be digging in a little bit, maybe doing some case studies on this because it was such interesting information, but um, anecdotally, uh, states are seeming to indicate that even when given the choice, people are looking for more virtual kinds of services and not necessarily to walk in, which get, makes for interesting implications for things like the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act, which mandates that you have to have a physical, comprehensive one stop in each local area. Well, that may be, again, another kind of federal mandate that creates a built in inefficiency and isn't aligned to the customer way that uh, locals need to be able to, and states need to be able to, to react to, to changing conditions. So thoughts, Rachel and David, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I um, David and I, through this initiative we've been running called um, SkillBase at Harvard in collaboration with the Harvard students and staff have been working um, closely with the One Stops in Massachusetts and the Mass Hire um, Network and their staff um, over the course of the crisis. We, uh, we had this team of Harvard students that built a really interesting um, tech tool that's helping to curate and aggregate um, free resources on foundational skills that the one-stop staff could then help um, 
distribute and disseminate for um, for job seekers in, in their region um, and sort of help uh, handle some of the transition to the virtual atmosphere. So I've sat in on some of these interviews as well with the job center staff and seeing how their own kind of daily flow of work has really been disrupted, how they think about what it means to serve, a, some, serve someone looking for work in a virtual environment, I think was relatively... Um, under leveraged uh, prior to this crisis. I think you're right, Mason, about, look, some of the models are, um, are outdated. There's ways in which the, actually though, the fragmentation of the system, um, I think we should question some things. Say like, you need to develop an, a, does it matter based on which geography you're in, the resume, um, resume development seminar, should that be customized to your local region or do we want to take the overall best um, best person who's out there on doing resume review and kind of make that accessible to job seekers um, across the state or across the country? Like, what does it look like to achieve some of the economies of scale um, that are that are facilitated and enabled through technology. Um, I think like one of the biggest research questions are going to be like, what's the, what's the right, um, what's the complement between technology and human support that um, is the right balance? Which of the services can most easily and best be scaled um, virtually and really don't require a human? Um, and which ones um, are gonna need we, we can give more focused support, more coaching, more resources, um, both at a service level and both for the types of workers that have been really been identified to, to need that extra support. I, I know that like Rasea and some of the programs out there at least have these objectives at a broad level, but COVID has provided a really interesting kind of testing laboratory for those questions. And I'm hopeful that we'll kind of like be able to evaluate and look backwards on what's been learned about efficacy of, of the types of services in the different settings. I'll say the one thing that I'm concerned about for, regarding this brick and mortar question is, is the community aspect. Um, you know, we talked a lot about the mental health effects of being unemployed and um, how you can get into these cycles of depression and anxiety and having peer support really can make a difference of other people going through the same thing at the same time, trading advice with each other, building a social network in, com in your community that can help you connect to jobs. I haven't seen great examples yet of, of that being replicated online. I think there there's certainly attempts um, to do so. But if you think about the role that the job centers played in the Great Recession of really being um, a place where you could have somewhere to go in the morning, um, meet other people who are going through the same thing and kind of get just get that peer support, whether it be from the from the staff or just from others in your community. Um, that's one where I think it will be interesting to see if there are effective models that are developed virtually. But it seems to me that um, that linkage between like, how do you meet other people in your community who can help you um, in the job search is a little bit harder to um, to replicate through Zoom. I'll stop there, though, yeah. if David has any. Yeah, I, I think it's a really good point. Um, and what what struck me about our conversations with the local workforce folks is the need to kind of reserve the capacity of the workforce system for those who really need it. Maybe it's the 14% who really, like they need that engagement um, in order for it to work, for the, the support to work. But 
having a system that's also flexible enough so that we aren't jamming everybody through one funnel um, because we don't have the capacity um, for that. We're not likely to, to have the capacity for that, but really have something that's flexible that allows those who are, you know, know where they're going, know where they're trying to get to go. They know what they're interested in. You know, they can transition quickly to training and employment and other people who are going to need more intensive support, you know, that we've got some capacity there to um, to help those workers. Um, so last question from me, and then we're going to, we've got a couple questions from the audience um, uh, that I wanted to uh, give you. But so when you think, one of the things that when, when we set out on this project, I asked that you guys think about is like, what can we learn from other countries uh, about effective practices um, uh, for supporting work transitions when we've got uh, layoffs and factories closing and, you know, offshoring or whatever's going on. But what um, anything that you see out there that we ought to you think the United States ought to be looking at closely uh, in terms of models? Do you want to start, Rachel? Go ahead. Sure. I'm happy to take a first stab. I mean, I, I don't think this is like groundbreaking, but um, have always been struck by um, European countries like Germany and Switzerland's apprenticeship models and how tight the linkage between the training and the job at the end of the funnel is. And um, in the U.S., you know, that um, transition is not often smooth, that the employers are not involved at the first stage of the training. And therefore, um, it's not like when you complete that you uh, very quickly um, are, are placed into a job. And so I, I think focusing at that kind of connection point between what is the intersection between um, the training and the actual job at the end of the funnel is a, a place where the U.S. traditionally has has struggled and we can look at other systems um, that do a much better job of, um, of making that pathway smoother. Yeah, I agree with that. I would just add, it sort of goes back to something Mason said earlier about the definition of a sectoral program. I think that's the right level because to me, a sectoral program is like industry level or something like that. If you train for an individual employer only, that job tends to be more fragile. It's very dependent on how that employer does things. It's too specific. If you train at a very broad level, which is kind of what the U.S. does, like everybody goes to college and does the same thing, then you're not adequately meeting the needs. Sectoral is something in between because then you get in the ideal world, and they do this in a lot of the European countries, you get a group of employers together who have common needs. And you think about what is the kind of broad skill set that workers need in this sector. Um, and then if they end up going from one employer to the other, many of those skills transfer because they've kind of agreed on what it should look like at the end of the funnel. And so some compromise notion like that, that mirrors, at least in its end goal, I don't think because of federalism, it's never going to look exactly like a European country, but something that mirrors it in terms of a goal, I think would be a good place to start. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, so uh, one of the questions we have here from the audience is, can the speakers address uh, issues related to variation among displaced workers, especially in the number of years they might have remaining in the labor market and their willingness slash comfort level with retraining? 
Um, that's clearly an issue across the developed world uh, where we've got, a, you know, aging demographics. We've got a lot of people um, approaching retirement age uh, and a need to try to keep those people active as long as we can. Uh, so what about that? Um, what, do you, what do we do for older workers? Anyone? Well, <laughs> it's a great question. Um, and again, it sort of speaks to the anecdotal example I gave. Uh, um, uh, I, I think, again, this is where, um, you know, sometimes I think we do a little bit of a disservice in the way we handle this dislocated worker programs where we sort of say, well, if there's more training, 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 and it's kind of like that's the panacea that's going to fix everything. And I think, again, it gets down to building a response system of economic development, community colleges and education, workforce development professionals, and providing them with the tools and the, and the evidence information about how best to work on an individual basis. Uh, I think clearly kind of at the heart of the question is, and again, this is not easy, right? I mean, we, we, it's a struggle when you have somebody 60 years old that's just been laid off from the job they were in 30 years and expect them to now spend a year or two retraining. And, and when they're thinking, I just got to get to Medicare and Social Security, right? Um, and so I think it, it, it is incumbent upon us to have very flexible and individualized approaches that try to meet workers in different situations where they are. And, and I think this is really where it gets to having kind of gets to some of what Rachel said earlier, where I think sometimes our local folks aren't as connected to the demand side as they need to be. I mean, I think there's plenty of evidence that says we sometimes struggle with employer engagement with truly getting employers. And if you're in a labor market that doesn't have a lot of large sort of anchor employers, it really is a struggle because a lot of small mid-sized businesses are just trying to survive, especially when there's a COVID type crisis in their communities. So it becomes very difficult to how do you connect to that demand side and steer people in the right direction. But I think generally speaking, um, all you can do is don't pretend that training is the answer for everybody. Um, we heard Rachel and David talk about job search assistance, for instance, but I think really trying to connect with employer intermediaries and in communities like chambers of commerce, as, uh, industry associations and others um, trying to really, and I call it a business feedback loop. I think sometimes a mistake we made is we say it's a one way street. We need to hear from business. What are their needs? That's something you'll hear. I've been involved in some projects that that's not the case. You, the, the community colleges and workforce development professionals need to be providing data and evidence to employers about what kind of credentials are available and what do they mean? Um, what kinds of education training types of opportunities can they provide? And what does that mean so that when a worker shows up at their workplace looking for a job, that employer understands what the community college or the workforce development uh, system has done with that individual in terms of getting their skill levels up to a certain level. So I think it's that kind of individualized response and really having the understanding of how to engage with employers, how to connect to the demand side, and, and what is the evidence around these sectoral approaches and how do you develop and create them? 
One quick thing I'll just add, um, not endorsing it, but one interesting uh, policy that we that we uh, encountered in this work is um, a relatively underutilized piece of, of trade adjustment assistance is is wage insurance for um, for workers over 50 who were laid off in a, in a trade related displacement. And it's basically the idea that um, you can provide um earnings that replicate a share of their pre-displacement earnings um, if they take another job that pays less than what they were making um, prior to that job loss. Um, so it's, it's a that's a policy area that I'm going to be watching, I think, over the next few years to see what we can learn from it, because um, uh, Ben Hyman, whose work we we cited in the report, uh, has also been doing some work on this question. Um, and I think initial findings were that um, it does increase employment rates amongst uh, older workers compared to uh, the control group who did not receive um, did not receive those the wage insurance program. But it's a very, relatively very small share right now of um, of workers who actually tap into that. Uh, Brent, real quick, I think I think that's absolutely that gets to my earlier comment about transitional benefits. I'm, I'm glad Rachel raised that. Because again, having been engaged very heavily in the welfare reform after the 1990s in the state of Utah, one of the key pieces that made welfare reform initially successful was transitional benefits. That if a single parent with children received employment, he or she, most of the time it was she's, um, did not um, lose their transitional child care and Medicaid benefits for their family. And so it provided the incentives to get into the labor market and then work toward upward mobility and eventually getting self-sufficient and off of all those other government benefits. We do not have a similar kind of rubric in our dislocated worker programs, especially TAA in particular. I tried with some very limited success back in 07 to, to do, do this, but I think what Rachel's getting is exactly right. I think if there's one policy we could we could really work on at the federal level is how do we create easier transitions for people to get back in the labor market and not have it be an all or nothing kind of proposition. You're on mute, Brent. Sorry about that. Okay. Uh, exit question. Any worker uh, training for Brent? <laughs> yeah. Move the mouse. Click on the mute button. Uh, let's. Uh, so. Exit question here for us is we've talked a lot about long-term issues. This is uh, something that's come up in the Twitter feed. We've talked a lot about long-term reforms. Uh, and the question, good question being asked here is what can we do now? Uh, and I, uh, you know, what, um, what kinds of policy changes could be made that would give uh, that, that would immediately kind of free up, uh, the system. I'm going to let you think about that um, for a second, and then I'll talk about uh, about an idea that Mason and I have developed around the possibility of some sort of waiver authority for states to begin the process of um, of redesigning their systems. Um, you know, not attempting actually to go in and fix this all at once. But to say to states that are interested, that have leaders, governors, and legislatures that are interested in taking this issue on, giving them more more flexibility to um, draw outside the lines, as it were, in terms of what the Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act or other 
federal education training programs require um, so that we can kind of get uh, uh, get the garden, um, you know, sort of blooming out there and and see what kind of flowers we get out of uh, out of that when the federal government kind of maintains its presence in terms of resources, but kind of steps back on the regulatory front um, to allow um, uh, states to experiment more. So that's my my short-term idea. Um, anybody else have a short-term idea for supporting worker transitions? Brent, Brent I'll just, I'll jump in here real quick because um, I, I think it's a great question. And I think often we reflect on the longer-term problems without recognizing that there are a lot of really good things happening too, even now with COVID. And I think one of the things from a short-term, shorter term is that um, states really do have a lot of opportunities to sort of step in and fill the void, um, not necessarily with a reliance on the federal funding in order to do it. Um, a lot of states are uh, now, I think, moving toward um, funding for tuition assistance. I, I love West Virginia, which has what they call the HEAPS, pro they have West Virginia Invest and West Virginia HEAPS, that's H-E-A-P-S, the acronym, where you get $2,000 for short-term worker retraining. Um, I saw, I've seen, I do work in, with community college in West Virginia and see that program being used a lot and being very effective and helpful with getting people into very short-term credential training. So I do think from a shorter term basis, I, I hold most hope at the state and local levels that I think if you have entrepreneurial people, um, there are uh, a lot of things that they can actually do. And one of the things you and I just to pitch an AEI the AI work we're doing, Brent, as you know, um, we're developing a toolkit right now around some innovative practices that states have done around integration of their workforce systems and uh, provide that as a uh, way means to educate other states about there are current flexibilities, even with sort of a, the laws we have now that they can take and to, to improve these kinds of programs in, in the more near term. And so that's uh, something you and I are obviously and others are working on. So um, I, I really hold a lot of hope that at the state and local levels, there's a lot of really good things happening and can continue to happen to, to address these issues. Uh, I'll add just two, two quick thoughts. Um, the first is that often the kind of navigational role in this system gets overlooked and we don't have the funding streams to support it. But there's a lot of good evidence that we saw around investing in coaches, investing in, in, in guidance and mentorship and support to try to figure out what's the next stage or the path that's best for a worker. Um, and you can see you could allocate um, funding at a state level to support those types of investments. Um, one of the pieces of the American Families Plan that I'm most enthusiastic about that I think over gets often gets overlooked is the investment in kind of the wraparound service piece. Um, the child care, the mental health, um, emergency aid, um, all of these things that have often gotten overlooked in the training dialogue. Um, and when we think about community colleges that are actually serving students with the, the fewest financial resources, um, investments right now to make it easier to complete your program and then once you're on the job to, to stay in a job, um, I think our, uh, we'll have ROI um, for the longer run. David, any last thoughts to share with us? Uh, sure. I mean, I, I think that the question is, is a good one, which is what can we do in the short run? I would just say that 
all of these things are true, what folks have said, but I also think that part of the issue we have is that we're always thinking in the short run. So the answer might very well be, we're already doing what we could be doing in the short run. Now let's build the infrastructure so that when the next crisis happens, we have a better response in place. And so yeah. that's kind of a grumpy old man answer, but that's kind of what we're <laughs> uh, So there we go. That's great. Okay. Well, uh, I want to thank all of you, each of you, to, uh, for taking this time out um, to be with us this afternoon uh, for the great work uh, that, that the team of the Wiener Center um, did on this report. And um, just for our audience, uh, obviously, this will be available on uh, the AEI webpage. Share it uh, with people that you think might find it interesting. Uh, I also want to say that this is not the end of anything, um, that our intention uh, is to continue this collaboration um, uh, to push this conversation forward. You know, we're not going to change anything overnight. It's going to require a sustained effort, some serious policy development, uh, some compromises on uh, uh, issues that, you know, uh, this is pretty bread and butter, but there are going to be, uh, there are going to be differences in perspective. Uh, but we're looking forward to that, um, the continuation of this dialogue and in trying to support our lawmakers and our officials and the executive branch at the state level as well uh, in creating uh, better and easier transitions for people who are displaced from their jobs. So again, thank you uh, all of you for coming and I thank our audience for their attention and their questions. And we will see you back here um, in the future for more conversations about work. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.